Hey, good evening, world. Uh, this is Slade Johnson bringing you another uh, episode of Bright Lights, uh, where we uh, invite guests in uh, to tell their tales of success and achievement. Uh, they are indeed bright lights, that they are willing to share their bright lights with us and you, the audience, and hopefully you will share the knowledge that you gain uh, here with others that you meet. So it's a win-win-win situation. Uh, another wonderful uh, summer day here in Minneapolis. Boy, Wednesdays have been uh, very good. Uh, past couple of weeks, though, it's been uh, like 97 and somewhat humid. Today, the humidity is down, just good weather. Uh, I suppose the highlight of my week uh, was... I rented a chainsaw and I had some trees around the house that needed to be cut down and I'm proud of myself. I got most of them down. I got a couple more to go. And uh, I was telling someone uh, earlier that uh, it reminded me of my childhood and how my dad used to, uh, my dad actually uh, went to school for uh, auto mechanic. So he did that and he was a carpenter and he hunted and stuff like that. But wh where I'm getting to is at uh, uh, renting that chainsaw, cutting down those trees, reminded me of my childhood in a lot of ways. And the fact that uh, we often did most of our own work, you know, DIY, do it yourself. And no matter what it was, we did it ourselves, including uh, all the tree cutting and brick laying and roofing and everything we did ourselves. And I was telling my wife what was interesting about that is that my dad and all the older guys, they just had so much confidence in us that we could do anything they were doing. And because of their confidence in us, uh, we had confidence in ourselves. And so I, I, I'll never forget that. Uh, one other quick reminder, we will be having a special uh, Father's Day uh episode coming up uh during the week of father's day and we'll talk a little bit more about fathers and my fathers and my father and how important it was for me uh and his involvement in my life so we'll deal with that earlier but just be happy to know that uh dad uh was with me when i was cutting these trees down this week so uh i mentioned the bright lights that we bring to you tonight I am very pleased to have uh, the Reverend Dean Nelson with us. And uh, Dean has done so many things, uh, community service-wise, uh, religion, politics, everything. And he's the type of person that we like to bring to you and let him share uh, his story and some of the things that he's done, doing. And just about everybody we bring here are just positive people like I am uh, who believe that you can be anything you want to be and we're here to stress the positive uh as i mentioned on several occasions i feel sorry for our children nowadays because all they hear about are all the obstacles in that way and all the bad things going on in the world and all the bad people and i'm just blessed that when i was growing up uh the adults kept that away from us and just focus on what we needed to do and how we need to cope with the world as it is. Because since we do have a reverend on tonight, uh, I will 
mentioned the scripture that says there's nothing new under the sun and that's the way i went out into the world uh, that's what they prepared me for and it has served me very well so having said that uh let's bring on our guest tonight uh how you doing reverend nelson good to see you again Brother, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to be on with you. Thanks for allowing me to be on your program. Yeah, I, I consider it a privilege uh, myself to have you as a guest. So let's start here. Uh, Mr. D, Mr. Reverend Dean Nelson, uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from, your childhood, your family life growing up, and how that was a uh, precursor of wh what you're doing now and what you're, how you're spending your life now and serving people. Man, I appreciate you uh, asking about that because uh, family has always been important to me. I grew up actually in uh, not too far outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, to uh, uh, Eugene and uh, Zelma Nelson. So uh, I grew up with two fantastic parents uh, who actually grew up kind of about 60 or 70 miles outside of the D.C. area in a fairly rural area. And um, I had, uh, you know, three sisters growing up. So I was the oldest boy, but I had these three sisters that were younger than I am. And uh, we had a great, great family life. Uh, grew up, you know, like most kids, uh, you know, going to church, uh, working hard, uh, but had a part-time job, played sports, um, was blessed uh, out of, you know, probably 500 of, you know, my graduating class. It was one high school in the whole county and so uh, I was one of the few African-Americans that did graduate and went on to college, uh, started my college years at Howard University there in Washington, D.C., and uh, ultimately graduated from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. So that is uh, you know, that's a little bit about, you know, who I am and how I grew up. But um, uh, family was always extremely important to us and uh, certainly um, being introduced to uh, the Lord at an early age, you know, going to church was an important part of my culture and upbringing as well. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I tell everyone, uh, if we're to solve a lot of these uh, issues facing our community, one of the first questions we should ask, why are some people more successful than others? However you want to, because success is kind of a tricky word. But uh, I was talking to a friend of mine and he was saying to me, not too long ago that every male that he knew growing up had been to prison at least once. And I was then thought about that and uh, hardly anyone I grew up with ever went to prison or did not, uh, you know, go on to college and, and raise a family and things like that. So we really need to, I think sometimes start asking ourselves and, and I don't think it's just all faith and luck too, but I think the things that you mentioned, uh, family, uh, faith, uh, education, and uh, just economic development, money in people's pockets. And, you know, I was telling someone other uh, also that I consider myself having a perfect childhood. And uh, <laughs> that didn't mean we were rich. In fact, I wouldn't change my life for the wealthiest person in the world, uh, given the people that I uh, grew up with, given the culture that I grew up in. And just it's just a wonderful life to grow up. Uh, let me before I proceed, I can't let you get away with mentioning that you played a little sports without asking you what sport did you play, 
and I'll call you Dean from now on with the respect that you are a Reverend. So every time the audience, every time you hear me say Dean, put Reverend Dean Nelson uh, with it, okay? So tell me about the sports that you played growing up, uh, Dean. Yeah, man. So um, growing up, uh, we played uh, football was like the big, big deal, uh, you know, out, out where I was, uh, but also played basketball and ran track. Uh, was introduced uh, to soccer early on, which I really loved. Um, I was uh, I was a goalie uh, in soccer and uh, really enjoyed that because that was the one position on the soccer field where I could really uh, put my shoulder down and uh, <laughs> plow into dudes. So it was uh, it was fun. But uh, at some point, um, everything else began to take a little bit of a backseat to uh, to football. That was really what I, I enjoyed doing. Played uh, high school football, uh, won a lot of awards, and then had the opportunity to play uh, in college, but um, basically focused on my education and going to Howard and then ultimately the University of Virginia. But sports was a big part of, uh, you know, of our growing up. And uh, I think it taught us some important lessons. I mean, I had some of those football coaches that didn't mind, you know, putting their foot up your butt. Uh, they didn't mind challenging you, uh, but they were like role models. And in fact, today I'm, I'm very good friends, you know, with one of my uh, junior high and high school football coaches who was really like a father figure to me. So uh, sports was really important and uh, I enjoyed doing it and enjoyed uh, teaching and encouraging my son and my daughters to play sports as well. Yeah, it's a good thing. They didn't have cell phones with cameras on back in them days. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of our coaches would have been in trouble. Uh, some, of, Maybe even some of our parents, you know. But I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't because I think a lot of things have gotten off the rail uh, nowadays with this technology and cameras and things like that and calling people to task uh, for how they raise their children. Okay, so let's talk very briefly about some of the previous things that you've done. Uh, and maybe you just tell me, uh, without getting into your current position, some of the type of things you've done in your past. And I, I noticed a lot of it is uh, service oriented. So just give us a quick uh, synopsis of the things you did before you uh, got involved with your current effort with the Frederick Douglass Foundation. Sure. Yeah. Well, when when I uh, when I graduated from college, uh, I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to do. But while I was in college, I did have a uh, unique and very special encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, that was kind of a uh, put me on a trajectory where I joined a uh, a college campus uh, ministry. So I traveled up and down the East Coast from Princeton all the way down to University of South Florida, preaching and teaching on. Uh, on colleges and universities. Uh, that then led me to have a short career in higher ed, but ultimately my love was really uh, the gospel and serving people. And so ultimately I was involved with some church planting and then went on to, uh, to lead um, a campus ministry organization myself. And then ultimately ended up finding myself in Washington DC doing some political work. And so um, it was, you know, an exciting opportunity for me, but ultimately I knew that I would come back to the Washington DC area. Uh, I didn't know that I would be serving in the capacity that I am now, but I knew it was always going to be doing something for God and serving people. Wow. And how receptive were the college age student 
back in your days when you were doing the work at Princeton and up and down the East Coast? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I found that uh, if you simply share your story and are kind to people, people are open. And um, so I think we had a lot of success, particularly with uh, African-American uh, college students who had gone away from home. Some of them had gotten into trouble and done things that they, uh, you know, their parents certainly would not have wanted them to, but they wanted to at least find friends that they could, you know, share life with. They wanted to find people that they respected and not always, you know, telling them what they wanted to hear, but telling them the truth. And so we ended up having thousands of college students that, uh, that, that came to faith uh, and figured out how to live out their faith, even while they were there in college. And then uh, some who didn't, you know, there were some who would run away when they saw me coming around the corner. But, uh, but some of those same people today tell me how grateful they were that there was an example that at least encouraged them towards the right way. Okay. Do you uh, know any young people, perhaps you were the exception, Dean, who did not sow a few wild oats uh, when they were in college? And and uh, if you were like me, uh, my faith, I tell people it was my lighthouse to always guide me and get me back on track and I always uh, remember in the epic poem, Paradise Lost, I think it was, Milton said, know the rule of not too much. And I never <laughs> forgot that, just not too much. But uh, did you uh, find yourself, are you uh, an exception to the rest of us where, uh, you know, you sow a, sold a few wild oats. Uh, some of our oats are wilder than others. But uh, <laughs> I'm assuming that your faith is what either prevented you from doing it or uh, help you get back on the right track and keep things in perspective. Yeah, man, you know, that's a really good point. And I remember clear as day um, while I was still in college, just in my uh, reflection of reading the Bible and praying, uh, I remember clear as day, the Lord uh, really spoke to me through Psalms 23. And he said that I have led you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake, meaning that even though I had not uh, gotten any girls pregnant. I had not really lived a wild life. You know, the Bible says all of us are sinners, you know, and fallen short of the glory of God. But because I had an encounter with God at a young age, uh, it did prevent me from going into certain directions. I never uh, went inside of a jail except to visit guys that I knew. Uh, never got uh, got any girls pregnant. And to be, if I'm perfectly honest with you. Um, I was a virgin when I got married um, because God got a hold of me. But it's not because of my own doing. It really was because of God's uh, protection over me, I believe, that helped me to have a testimony that men uh, can live a life towards God and an honorable life towards others. And so we have uh, hundreds, if not thousands of young men that uh, once got involved with our organization, made those commitments to, uh, to celibacy, to demonstrate that um, the, the reality of God is, is real and that he can keep you from falling. Well, uh, another good segue here, Dean. Uh, tell me about this wonderful wife that you have uh, and uh, any children that you have and what are they doing? Uh, 
No. Yeah. Well, um, I was blessed uh, to find my wife now 25 years. We uh, just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Uh, her name is Julia. And uh, she was a college student when I was a campus minister. We connected uh, at the College of William, the College of William and Mary's where she was a student. And um, we, uh, you know, basically fell in love at an early, you know, early age. She had just graduated from college. And, uh, you know, basically I told her that, you know, if, if we were going to be together, uh, my life was dedicated to service and that I didn't know where we would be. We might travel around the globe, but she was willing to follow. And so fortunately, 25 years later, she still says she's happy and she renewed my, my, my contract for another year. So I'm happy and grateful <laughs> to God. <laughs> and what about any of uh, your children that you might have? What are they, how many, and what are they doing? Man, I'm blessed. I can have three kids. Now, my wife and I thought we would have about seven or eight, and we had three right off the bat. And then my wife just have, had multiple miscarriages. And I remember her saying to me, honey, she said, I just, I don't want to get pregnant again and not have a baby. And uh, so after three or four miscarriages, um, we decided that the the three that we had right off the bat, I mean, we had three in three or four years. Um, and so uh, Michaela, who was my oldest, who is a, was a D1 gymnast at the University of Washington. Uh, Amani, who is our, uh, I say my most woke child. Uh, she is uh, just graduated from, uh, from Johns Hopkins University and uh, is a, a fantastic young lady who is dedicated to the Lord. But uh, she, she announced to uh, all of us that she uh, in our family was not a Republican, that she was an independent. So all of my kids and family, everybody's registered as a Republican. But uh, she, she made it known that she wanted to be an independent. So she loves beating up on Democrats and Republicans. Oh, OK. <laughs> At least she's fair. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Then I have a son, Brandon, who is in his uh, second year uh, in Philadelphia at uh, Temple University, who uh, is a great, great young man. And um, I'm really, really blessed, Lacey, that I have uh, three kids that um, really have, uh, you know, honored us. And, you know, nobody's perfect, but they've uh, they've done really well. And I'm very proud of them. I find it interesting. I don't think I've ever met a woke individual who was an independent. <laughs> so you must be doing something right there. Dad must have some influence on him. Most of the time when they say they're woke, that's taking us the other way. Uh, so tell me this, Dean. Uh, I've been married myself 34 years, been with my wife 40 years. But you mentioned that you've been married 25 years. If you had to pick two or three things that you are you think are important for a successful marriage. What would those be? Uh, give me, give me two or three of them, Dean. Yeah, you know, one um, is always committing yourself to um, not going to bed uh, angry. Uh, I think that we have a healthy relationship and love each other. And certainly we are different personality types, but, um, but my wife has a great respect for me and I have great devotion for her. We have committed ourselves that even when we have those disagreements that uh, we don't go to bed, you know, angry, you know, at each other. 
So that means some nights I've never gone to bed. I stayed up all night <laughs> 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 till the next morning. But uh, but for the most part, so that's that's one. Uh, the other thing, man, for me is raising kids is always being uh, consistent as best as we can. Being consistent, um, not you know treating one kid this way or the other kid uh, the other kid another way. Uh, but just being consistent and, our, and and Julia and I being consistent with our messaging to the kids. You know, our kids will try to play you against each other. Uh, no, no, no. We're not we're not we're not having that. Um, just really, I think, being consistent. Um, and then the last thing uh, I, I think for successful marriage for me was when my wife is at her worst she needs me to be at my best and vice versa. And what I mean by that is when she is not having a good day and maybe upset or angry with me, I need to strive to recognize that that's at a, that, that may be a low point for her and I need to be strong and not retaliate, uh, which is easy to do. When somebody strikes at you, you know, you want to strike back. Nobody likes that. But, um, but recognizing though that this, this woman loved me. She uh, took my name. Uh, she followed, you know, the the vision that I put before us before we got married, and that I needed to uh, love and respect and give her my best uh, when uh, when she's not having her best day. And she certainly does that for me as well. I love that last point you made. Uh, I think this is very key, and a lot of us husband, we still learning that and working towards being that way. I had a friend of mine and, and it set off a light in my head, a light bulb in my head. He said that uh, when his wife was struggling with something, he just remembered the childhood that she had and the things mm -hmm. that happened to her. And that made him even more loving and impatient and understanding with her. So that's, that's wonderful advice. Now you mentioned this one rebel daughter of yours who's woke and independent. Uh, while you were mentioning that, you also uh, mentioned the fact that she's living in a house of Republicans. And where I'm getting to now, uh, Dean, is what you're currently doing. Uh, as I understand, you're chairman of the Frederick Douglass Foundation. And so I want you to tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing. But before you even answer that, as far as your current position, uh, why Frederick Douglass? Uh, that'll be my first question for you. Yeah, well, man, that's the that that is the best question I think that you could you could ask me because uh, when I was a kid, uh, as I was telling you, being raised by my my parents, I remember when I was in grade school, my mother brought home some Black History comic books, and in that collection of comic books. You had Martin Luther King Jr. You had like Marian Anderson. You had Robert Smalls, Harriet Tubman. But there was one figure in that list of comic books that had two books. And uh, that was Frederick Douglass because he had lived a long life. Uh, they had dedicated two comic books to him. So that was my first introduction to Frederick Douglass when I was a young man. And so I always had a high regard for black history, but particularly this guy, Frederick Douglass. As I got older, um, I would learn more about Mr. Douglass. Um, I remember reading this quote where he said that I'm a black dyed in the wool Republican and would never be a part of any other party, 
but the party of liberty and progress. And so that helped me when I was uh, growing up and, you know, kind of figured out that I was more of a conservative than I was uh, a liberal. And then finding out that Frederick Douglass himself was a great champion uh, for righteousness and justice and did so through the Republican Party. So those are some of the key reasons for me. Lastly, I'll highlight when I discovered that Frederick Douglass was also a licensed minister of the gospel, that also had a profound impact on me. Uh, and the more that I read about this man, the more I just became fascinated and enthralled. I mentioned earlier that I had an encounter with God that kind of put me on a trajectory for what I do. At the age of roughly 13, Frederick Douglass talks about a great encounter that he had with God, uh, repenting after his sins and uh, saying that, you know, he had a whole new life. He said the whole world seemed to be new. And he said that uh, even though he hated slavery, he even loved the slaveholder. So it was a profound impact that uh, that was that Frederick Douglass had. And I think that that has helped me to appreciate his life and legacy even more. Well, that's uh, very powerful what you're saying there, because I think one of the biggest you mentioned that he loved the slave owner. And I think one of the biggest challenges we Christians have is the one that uh, asks us to love our enemies. And that's a tough one most of us can't get over. And I try to do that. And the interesting thing about it, when you love your enemies, the enemies of your enemies don't like you for some reason. Because <laughs> they want you to feel the same way about them as they do. And that's so true. I never go there with them. Uh, yeah, and the thing about it, I became, I knew of Frederick Douglass, but became even more familiar with him during the Civil War documentary by Ken Burns. And uh, he had such powerful quotes and statements. And of course, it didn't hurt that Morgan Freeman was his voice in, in the documentary. <laughs> So tell me, uh, uh, how long has the Frederick Douglass Foundation been around? Uh, how, what do you do as the chairman? And maybe even get into, I know you got chapters across the country. Give us a little background on that. Yeah, so um, we started the Frederick Douglass Foundation, myself, a uh, gentleman named Timothy Johnson and Troy Rowling. We started it in 2009 after President Obama was, uh, was elected. And we did so uh, at a gathering. It was probably about 15 uh, black uh, independents and conservatives that gathered in Washington, DC after President Obama was elected. And we're like, hey, what is our responsibility? We have someone who looks like us kind of, you know, in the White House, but he doesn't really represent the values. You may know Lacey, that 71% of black Americans, according to Pew Research, say that they are conservative or moderate and not, uh, not liberal. So we knew that those were the values of you know, many of our people, but uh, we knew that President uh, Obama did not really represent a lot of those values in his policies. And so that's kind of how we got started with the Frederick Douglass Foundation, just as a small group of, uh, of, of people. And uh, in 2010, we had a conference in Washington, D.C., where we had about 30 black Republicans that were running for federal elected office. And uh, no, the RNC didn't even know about all of these candidates. So we brought many of them together. And uh, I remember being up all night doing this press release. And we put out this press release 
about this event that we were doing. We didn't know that anybody would show up, but the next day, all of these press people came because there was this collection of all of these Republicans that were running for office. And so that's kind of how we got our launch uh, back in uh, 2010 in a very meaningful way. And uh, since that time, we've established about uh, 16 chapters in different states across the country as a grassroots you know, uh, organization that uh, fights for righteousness, justice, liberty, and virtue. So name a few major cities that uh, you have local chapters in right now, and what are you plotting behind the scenes to expand? Which, which cities are you plotting to expand to? Yeah, well, we have chapters in, uh, in Virginia, in North Carolina, in Maryland, also in Georgia, in um, California, uh, New York, uh, Illinois, uh, numbers of other places, but we have just begun to expand. In fact, uh, next week, Colonel Allen West will be speaking at a launch for us in uh, Wisconsin, where we have uh, just started a new chapter. Uh, we also just started a, a new chapter in uh, Georgia. Uh, we're looking at South Carolina, uh, Florida, and a handful of other states where people are asking us to come uh, because they really want a, a grassroots organization that engages well with African-Americans and named after some an icon like the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass. And so those are some of the places that we're involved in. Uh, some of you, those who listen to you might be um, aware or might appreciate the fact that uh, since we've been around, uh, we've done a lot of grassroots work. We've literally distributed millions of voter guides to help people better understand positions of candidates and have knocked on probably about a million doors uh, in the few years that we've been around, helping to engage with um, all communities, quite honestly, but particularly black community, helping them to better match their votes with their values. Uh, that's an excellent goal uh, to shoot for. Now, uh, Dean, I can't let you get away with being the East Coaster that you are. And I know people who are on the East and West Coast, they tend to think that there's no middle America. But <laughs> where I'm going, Dean, uh, you do know that Wisconsin is next door to Minnesota, right? Listen, my geography, I've been out of school for a while, but it's not that bad. So I do know it's not too, too far. And uh, okay. we have chapters also in Michigan and, as I mentioned, uh, Illinois. So we're kind of we're kind of all around the great state of Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I'm not going to ask you to name the capital of Wisconsin or Minnesota. I'll let y'all folk there. Uh, but uh, what city in Wisconsin uh, are you uh, opening up a chapter in? And Colonel West, I think you said, is going to be speaking at. What city are we talking about in Wisconsin? Yeah, so, uh, so the, uh, the, the young lady that's leading our organization, uh, she is based in Milwaukee. Okay. Uh, the event is going to be just outside of uh, of Madison. Uh, uh, one of our leaders was just in, I believe, uh, Racine. And also, I believe he spoke in, um, I want to say Stevens Point, but it wasn't Stevens Point. That's where another guy is. But uh, he was traveling to a couple of cities uh, in Wisconsin just about a week or so ago doing some of the type of programming that we do. So we're, we're really excited about it. Um, on the 25th of June is when that event will take place. I believe it is in conjunction with the state party. And so we're really excited about 
uh, this launch there in the great state of, of uh, actually almost said Minnesota, of Wisconsin. So uh, you mentioned chapters, original chapter in Washington, D.C. during the Obama era. Uh, you mentioned Madison, Wisconsin with the latest chapter. These are not known as hotbeds of conservatism. The, in fact, they are just the opposite. Uh, it takes a little guts to do what you're doing, I guess. Uh, and for some reason, the, the scripture come to the mind, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall feel no evil. But uh, how, what kind of reception did you receive originally in Washington, D.C., uh, which we know is basically a liberal town. So uh, how, how did that work out? And did you have to uh, go out and keep an eye on your car win windows and things while you were going around? How did that work out, Dean? Well, one of the things that we do when we go in is we don't first talk uh, politics. We talk values. And so we talk about strengthening the black family. We talk about economic opportunity. We talk about criminal justice reform. We talk about educational choice. And when you talk those things, most in the African-American community are wide open to listen to what you have to say, because we believe in economic opportunity. We just believe from our vantage point that the free market system is better equipped to provide that. And we can show the data. We can show the examples of Frederick Douglass, who during his time period had uh, people that were involved in the socialist uh, movement who he soundly rejected. Uh, so we know what prosperity looks like. We know that the black family, even though it has been decimated in the last few decades by bad public policy, we know the resilience of the black family. In fact, we just uh, this week are releasing a report on the black family. And we would love for those who are listening uh, in your audience to visit us at dlinstitute.org. Uh, if they sign up for our email updates, they'll get a free copy of that report, which is uh, on the strength of the black family. So these are the things that we go into. We've done hundreds of programs around the country that specifically gauge on issues. And as we talk about the issues, then we show good public policy and where those policies tend to fit, whether they're center right or center left. And uh, I'm happy to say though, there are opportunities where we have uh, identified with uh, some black Americans who are Democrats, who uh, I would say are more common sense Democrats uh, who have voted. Uh, but most of those people end up getting pushed out by their party, uh, you know, when they start rising up. And so we, we felt the need to engage with these folks in these different cities, talk about these values and policy, and then let them know, hey, if you feel that these areas are your areas and you you need to feel comfortable you know as an independent or as a republican and so we've had really good success some people say well man i'm not quite ready to be a republican but i am certainly ready to join the frederick douglas foundation okay that's great uh i tell everyone myself d my mom and the people that raised me they were conservative oh, and, no question uh, yeah and and i pre the older i get the more i appreciate that uh so uh one of the things I read, uh, I think, on the website of the Frederick Douglass Foundation, and you just hinted on it, uh, that you believe in the sanctity of free market, limited government, 
to bear on the hardest problems facing our nation. Uh, expound on that just briefly, Dean, because I know you have some, another engagement, but the uh, positive effect uh, that free enterprise and limited government really have on uh, a lot of the issues uh, facing our communities. And I, I agree with you, by the way. So expand yeah. on that somewhat. Yeah, there, there are a number of areas that we could look at, but because this is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots, I will, I'd like to draw our attention. You know, you had communities, black communities over 100, you know, 100 years ago and more, um, whether it was uh, Rosewood in Florida, whether it was Sweet Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, whether it was Tulsa, we had communities that were intact with the intact families and they were prospering. What people don't realize is why was it that white, angry white racists went into these towns and burned them? It was because there was so much prosperity, they were jealous, they were angry at seeing how much prosperity there was in a black Wall Street and in some of these other areas. And so I think that we need to look a little bit to the past to say, how did they have so much success? How did they have wealth? Why was it that my grandfather uh, acquired 70 acres of land in Virginia? You know, what was it about them that made them successful? See, I think that it's better for us to examine success than to wring our hands over failure. And I believe that these are the kind of things that we need to do. Then some of the hardest hitting uh, problems within our community, I could talk about the educational crisis where in certain zip codes you uh, you have uh, underperforming schools that have left black families uh, you know lagging behind but I could talk about the black family and I could talk about Planned Parenthood uh, they celebrated a few years ago their hundredth anniversary so for a hundred years they've been propagating a eugenics ideology that has flipped uh, the conditions in the black community from being some of the strongest faith and family communities now to where 72 percent uh, of uh, children are born out of wedlock. 80 percent of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are found in black communities where black women today uh, are more likely uh, to get abortions than their white or Hispanic counterparts. You know, a third of abortions, really more than a third of abortions are performed on black women. So these are some of the hardest hitting areas. And what we're trying to do is to provide solutions to those areas that are not just another government program. Well, yeah, and let's uh, talk briefly here on the issue of abortion. Now, I've heard uh, a number of figures as far as how many uh, black babies have been aborted since uh, Roe v. Wade, anywhere from 20 to 60 million. What number uh, do you use or do you feel comfortable uh, using when you're talking about the number of black babies that's been aborted over the past decades? Yeah, sure. You're really talking about closer to that 20 million number for black children specifically. Um, there's roughly about a million abortions that take place now uh, every year, and about a third of those, a uh, little bit more, um, maybe are performed on African American women. And so, you, uh, if you go back to, you know, since Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, prior to Roe v. Wade, in some communities, 
um, you know, and you maybe know this, Lacey, growing up, you know, it used to be thought of that abortion was just something that white people did. It wasn't something that we did. And part of that, because we see so many out of wedlock births. But the reality is, is in many of these areas, um, abortion is, uh, you know, largely in some of these urban areas is, a, is an ethnic problem. Uh, but and I think it's important to note, though, that it hasn't always been that way. And there's a reason for it. You know, in 1939, Margaret Sanger wrote a letter to uh, Clarence Gamble of the Procter and Gamble fortune stating we don't want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. She would engage with ministers to help her diabolical plot of trying to reduce the black population. And so today her vision has been fulfilled largely because 80% of those surgical abortion facilities, as I mentioned, are found in black and Latino neighborhoods. So, Dean, you mentioned a few things here that uh, like uh, 72 percent of uh, black Americans identify as being conservative and with conservative principles. We talked about the abortion issue and the horrendous impact it's having on the black community. Uh, how do you explain the fact that we basically are conservative and and like you say, I remember the time when you would never even think of aborting a baby. And we've transitioned into that type of culture. How do you explain this, Dean? How, how do we get here? And then, uh, just as importantly, how do we get out of here? So, <laughs> well, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, thoughts in terms of how how we got there and what the, the issue is. There is a... Um, uh, a doctor by the name of Tasha Philpot, uh, University of Texas and Austin, who has written uh, quite a bit about this. Um, it's uh, I think it's uh, one of the things she wrote is conservative, uh, but not Republican. And really, political parties kind of, you know, over a period of time shift, you know, some of their ideologies and their principles. And I think that um, during the Great Migration, when many blacks left uh, the South and went to the North, and they were seeking, you know, in some of these industrialized areas, uh, employment. Uh, you know, some of the things that happened in those areas is uh, labor unions. And as the labor unions began to uh, move into those areas and kind of bridge their allies with, uh, with, with the Democratic Party, I think that's one of the reasons that you did see a shift uh, in certain cities uh, with Black Americans changing. And then FDR, um, back in his day, um, not for his party, but because of a lot of the programs that he pushed uh, during, you know, after, you know, the Great Depression. Um, first, they were to whites, and then he saw the opportunity to engage with blacks. And so FDR was one of those early ones who uh, pushed uh, engagement with blacks. And uh, that, that, that began to tip it. And so between the time period of FDR and um, uh, Eisenhower, you did see a shift of black Americans shifting their allegiance from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. Uh, but of course, at that time, uh, Democrats were not um, pro-LGBTQ. Uh, uh, during that time period, Democrats were not uh, pro-abortion. Uh, early on, you even had people like Ted Kennedy, who um, you know promoted his uh, you know pro-life uh, positions, you know, back in the seventies. And so, but as modern, you know, politics has moved, there's been this real cultural shift and the Republican party has kind of, 
been a champion of social and moral causes in the last, you know, several decades. And I think that that's where there's been this big shift. Okay, so let me, uh, and I'm aware of the time here, but let me uh, challenge your profession a little bit here. Uh, when I hear about the number of abortions, when I hear about the conservative leaning yet voting uh, against that, uh, why would I not ask, well, why aren't the black churches and ministers help uh, deal with the, those type of challenges? Uh, I can't remember, I can't remember the last time uh, I've heard anything in the church that dealt with those type of issues or dealt with anything that seemed to go against the grain of certain parties. So what is going on there, Dean? And, you know, we remember the time when uh, black ministers were just straight down the line. and But now they seem to shy away from certain issues that not consistent with scripture. What's going on there, Dean? You know, Lisa, I think the best example to use that can convey what has happened is in the example of the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Um, Jesse Jackson, you know, during the 70s uh, and even early 80s was a very strong proponent of life and was opposed to abortion. He even encouraged that there would be a federal uh, constitutional amendment that would ban abortion. That was Jesse Jackson then. But when he wanted to gain political power and greater influence, then he shifted his position, particularly in 84, I believe, when he decided to run for president. And I think that that example um, really gives a picture of what has happened to some of the African-American ministers, and that is trading their commitment to biblical Christianity and being a voice within our communities for justice and for righteousness have sought rather to become popular political pundits rather than standing up for what is right. And uh, I may know many of them that try to, you know, uh, do it, have it both ways, but we only need to remember what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from a Birmingham jail when he says that the church must be reminded that it is not the master nor the servant of the state, but is called to be the conscience of the state. And if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it becomes an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. I think therein you have the what has happened within the African-American church. And just one last thing on that, once again. Uh, so when I look around, Nowadays, I see a lot of young woke people leading the fight for justice and just saying things like uh, rioting is a form of reparation or something, looting is a form of reparation. And, and you know, our generation, we just can't identify with that. But I guess that's what they've been ta taught in schools and things like that. Uh, how do we, how did uh, black religious, religious leaders, period, because back in the early civil rights movement, it was across the board. How do we uh, give up that leadership role to a bunch of woke young people uh, who, and to be honest, and I'm just keeping it 100, as I like to say, uh, seem to have no uh, time for God. Uh, it's very seldom I hear God or anything spiritual mentioned. So how do, how do we end up where 
they now are the face of this quote unquote social justice movement and not religious leaders, mature religious leaders. Yeah, um, there's a lot I could say about that, but I wanna emphasize this. Someone said recently to me about Black Lives Matter, they said, finally, a black movement that liberals can fully embrace. And they said it for two reasons. One, because it was not led by preachers. It was led by two uh, uh, elites that have uh, alternative lifestyles. And it, uh, it was not led by men. So it was not in the church and it was, and it was also not led by men. And so that is partially, I believe, why it has gotten such great attention because I think that the secularist, liberal, anti-God uh, crowd can embrace it fully. They always were uncomfortable with all of the God talk that King had. People have been uncomfortable with Frederick Douglass and all of the you know, prophetic vision and communication that he had. So I think that that's, that's part of it. But now I do also want to say that the emerging generation didn't raise itself. And so we have to take responsibility for why uh, you know, we have a generation that is arising that doesn't have a firm foundation. It is our responsibility to educate our children and to impart biblical wisdom. And I think that we have lost it. So I think we need to first uh, repent ourselves for not standing up and doing what we should have done and ask God to humbly forgive us to allow us to have a voice to speak to this generation that is emerging and to generations in the future. That's an excellent point. I, I, I always uh, somewhat uh, half, only half kidding and say the issue is not without youth. The issue is with us adults who is in charge of the youth. But here's the thing too, though, Dean, uh, I don't know whether you're like me or most adults uh, from my generation. I really underestimated the other influences that was on my children, the educational system, the media, uh, pop culture. Because you remember when we were growing up, none of that mattered. I mean, mom and dad was there and there was a final word on everything. But nowadays, I mean, just the impact of our educational system on our children, man, it's just incredible. And I'm really concerned about it. Uh, so anyway, that's very good. Dean, is there anything that uh, you'd like to leave our audience with on a positive note uh, or any question you'd like to answer, but I was not a smart enough uh, interviewer to ask the question. So this is your chance to bail me out and uh, help me uh, uh, end it on a good note and look better. Well, no, I just want to say a huge thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on the program. Uh, I would love for people to be able to visit us at um, fdfnational.org. That's the Frederick Douglass Foundation, which is the more political of our two entities. The other one is uh, dlinstitute.org. The Douglass Leadership Institute, named also after the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass, is a 501c3. It is not a partisan organization. It is about, uh, it is about values and about restoring uh, those values that have made uh, our people and America a great nation not under we don't we don't sweep under the rug the issues and the the sins uh, of our nation but like the great abolitionist frederick Douglass, 
who basically went back and forgave his slave owner uh, and uh, but was able to impact the world. I think that that is something that is missing through uh, this grievance culture of our generation is that uh, the idea of redemption. We all need redemption. We all need forgiveness. And I think that there's a generation that has emerged that is angry and nothing will satisfy. They want uh, they want people to pay. They don't really have any real solutions. And that never is going to bode well for a civilization. And so I just want to encourage folks to visit us uh, to learn more about the work that we do. Uh, and I'll end with uh, one of the quotes from Frederick Douglass. He said, uh, righteousness. He said, I have one great political idea. He said, the best expression of it I have found in the Bible. It is in substance. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. He said, that's the whole of my politics, the positive and the negative of my politics. Thanks so much, Lacey. Uh, thank you. And thanks for ending on that positive note. I will reiterate that. And I love what you said about let's look at why are some people successful, some blacks successful, some not, some people of color are successful, some not. And I think once we start doing that, that one of the main things it does is takes away that single factor. Because right now we have a generation who think that if you just saw the race issue, everything else will go away. And we know that that is not true. And as long as we're chasing that, uh, I call it fool's goal. We'll never get a lot of these issues solved. So thank you for expanding our minds and, and bringing knowledge uh, to the audience. And we will uh, someday uh, have you on again. Uh, send me some information about what's going on in Wisconsin because that's too close to home for me to just let you come in the backyard and not know what you're doing. I might even run up there to see you guys, okay? We so, love it, man. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, and thanks and have a great time. I think you're in Florida now. Uh, go out and have dinner and enjoy yourself and share a little bit about our a wonderful get-together this evening. So thanks a lot, Reverend Dean Nelson. Hope to see you soon. God bless you. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Thanks.